Today on the Multiply Podcast, we're talking about the power of problems. Check it out. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Multiply Podcast, or welcome to the Multiply Podcast if it's your first time. My name is Jared. And my name is David. We're glad you guys are with us. Thanks for joining. Yes, and uh, excited about today's topic, excited to dive in. Um, but before we do, Dave, how's your summer been? Summer's been nice, man. I'm heading in two days down to New York City and going to do our annual family food tour. Mm, I've been on one of those with you. Yeah, so quite an adventure. this is a new one, though. We've always stuck to Manhattan, um, but this time we're going to Brooklyn, specifically to the Williamsburg neighborhood and i may or may not have been up too late last night mapping out my day using google maps did you know you could do that by the way i did not yeah on google maps you can set up a map of like every location you want to hit in an area and they color code it and they mark it and they can tell you the distance between them and chart out a path and so i mean i don't i don't think normal people think this much about where they're going to eat um so there's Sometimes I'm concerned. I'm like, is this normal? This seems like some sort of idolatry in your life. But <laughs> it sounds cool. Um, no comment. <laughs> now, I, I'm critical until I want to know where I should eat. And then as everybody else, I hit you up and ask you. So that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm looking I'm looking forward to take a little vacation soon, get back to my roots. Yeah, where are you headed? Vermont. Oh, yeah. From Vermont. So I'm heading back there. And um, Vermont is... Um, kind of paradise in the summertime it's a beautiful mm-hmm. beautiful place and so while i'm eating amazing pizza and soup dumplings and deli sandwiches you'll be drinking maple syrup right out of tree oh can't wait can't wait that i mean that does show your ignorance because maple syrup doesn't come out of a tree sap does and you got to boil it down but anyway yes absolutely you'll um, be drinking sap right out of I'll a tree be, <laughs> sap doesn't even taste good so it kind of tastes like water Why are you drinking it then yeah exactly so i'll be i'll be uh on a lake enjoying myself having fun with the family and uh, it'll be nice, but good for you, man. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. This podcast has been fun. Hey, thank you for listening, and for those of you who have given us feedback, um, we appreciate that. Our our goal for this is to create a resource that would be a benefit for leaders. So, yeah, and um, if you like it and you rate it and you share it, it helps get the word out. So, we appreciate that too. Yeah, thank you for doing that as well. Um, hey, today we want to talk about the power of problems, the power of problems, which kind of seems like an oxymoron, but we think it'll make sense as we dive into it. So, Dave, give us a little bit of an introduction as to what we're going to be hitting on today. Yeah, there's 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 two shows that I, I like to watch. or Actually, I don't even know if they're on anymore, but I used to watch them. Uh, one's called Restaurant Impossible, and the other one's called Kitchen Nightmares, surprisingly both about food. And um, <laughs> Basically, what would happen is in, in one of them, Chef Gordon Ramsay, and the other one, I think it's Chef Robert Irvine, they would walk into these struggling restaurants, and uh, they'd come in sometimes undercover or set up, uh, hidden cameras, and they would uh, just identify uh, these um, struggling, failing restaurants that were in huge debt and not really um, making good food or serving their community well. And always the owners or the chefs had the same basic set of um, explanations or excuses. They would say, you know, uh, well, this used to work. 20 years ago, we were hopping. We're not anymore, but it was 20 years ago. It should work now. 
Um, or they would say there are some faithful people like there's I remember one episode in particular there's like one table of four that came every Friday night and they told the chef like if you ever change the menu we're not going to come back meanwhile there's no one else in the restaurant <laughs> so he was he was afraid of losing the four so exactly yeah. yeah and so and then almost in all cases they're just doing too many things their menus are too big they're they're trying to cook too many different things that they don't have the skill to do and you know I was watching that and um, for seven years of my life I spoke in different churches Oh, two to three times a month. And I always kind of envisioned walking in as one of them, you know, church nightmares, church impossibles, and walking in and just kind of seeing the problems and then suggesting solutions. And I think as leaders, we're all naturally wired to fix things, right? We come up with solutions, good leaders design solutions, and they may work, they may not work, and we go back to the drawing board. But over time, it's easy to forget that while the problem is timeless, the problem that we exist to solve. So in the local church, uh, our problems are people need to be reconciled to God. People need to grow in their faith. People need to live on mission, right? So those are some of the big problems. While the problem is timeless, the solutions we've created are not. And healthy leaders understand the power of the problem. Another way of saying this is healthy leaders love the problem more than they love their solutions. Um, so in your experience, you've worked in local church, you've worked in different church organizations. Is this something that resonates with you, something that you can connect with? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, um, I think it's huge because there's, there's different ways to look at the problem, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think when you work around different leaders and you're with different people, um, different people have different approaches. And, um, so some, some will be overwhelmed or just, uh, in order to protect their pride or whatever. Yeah. Or their position or their position, um, fill their heart and mind with excuses and and usually it turns into blame right it's like oh it's these people it's right people aren't coming anymore to this program because they just don't love jesus enough right exactly which could be partially true but what good is it doing to just kind of rant and rave that the uh, existing solution isn't working so a lot of times in churches what i've uh, realizes that our efforts become less about diagnosing the problem properly and in its current um, sort of manifestation or in its context less about diagnosing the problem and more about defending existing now ineffective solutions and uh some of the things that i think qualify as solutions when i think about the local church are like the programs that we implement these all start with the letter p so it's easy to remember Mm, thank you programs we implement policies we write procedures systems we create properties we own positions we create and the people that we hire those ultimately all are solutions to problems, and there's nothing wrong with any of those solutions. But what happens when we fall in love with a solution and are unable to see that it's not effective anymore? And um, or or maybe it's not the most effective. Sure, because yeah. there's could be levels of effectiveness, right? And and there's seasons in life and in ministry. So oh yeah, what was what was super effective three years ago mm-hmm. may still be effective, but maybe it's at 80% of what it was. And, and with some tweaking or changing, you could get it back up to 100%. Right. And you're only going to look at it that way if you love the problem most, right? Yeah. If your heart is captured by why you exist, not what you're doing. And so a lot of times what happens is leaders value the past over, over progress, right? And there's this nostalgia. And part of the nostalgia, just to be fair, is it worked for me. 
Yeah. And this really helped me. And it, we maybe can feel like if it doesn't help you, or if you're saying it doesn't work, are you saying it never worked? And is it somehow invalidating how it helped me? So dive into that a little bit. Give, give, uh, give us an example of what that could look like. Sure. Well, let, um, I'll give you a, let me give you actually an example from scripture and then I'll, and then I'll give you like a real life, sorry, real life. Let me pick something from this fictional book called the Bible and then I'll give you a real <laughs> yeah, life. Yeah, then give story. us the real stuff. <laughs> let me give you something that's a true story from the Old Testament and then a true story that's from now. Wow. All right. Credentials are on the line for a minute there. <laughs> um, in Numbers 21, there's this weird story uh, where the Israelites are in the wilderness. They're grumbling like always, and God sends poisonous snakes, which he's just like, forget it. Here you go. And uh, they are bitten, and they're beginning to die. And the people come to Moses, and they're like, we've sinned. Um, we spoke against God. We spoke against you. Pray that God will take away the snakes. So Moses prays for them, and God instructs him what to do. He says, make a replica of a poisonous snake, which is like, uh, attach it to a pole. And then he says, just all who are bitten will look at it and they'll live. Mm-hmm. And it's this actual beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel, look and live, right? Look to the cross and we find life. Right. Um, so Moses makes a snake out of bronze. He does it. He holds it up and they're healed. So, so this, this bronze serpent is a tool of deliverance. There was a solution yeah. to a major problem. Well, 800 and 900 years later, in Second Kings 18, we read about the bronze serpent again. Uh, in Second Kings 18, verse 1, Hezekiah begins to rule over Judah, and uh, he serves God. He does what's pleasing in his sight, and he removes shrines and, sm- and smashes sort of uh, idolatrous pillars and poles and stuff. But then it's this interesting phrase in verse 4. It says, he broke up the bronze serpent, which means he crushed the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. Um, and, uh, there's this interesting thought in this passage that what God used to bring rescue and deliverance and freedom to one generation became actually a source of bondage for another generation because Mm. they fell in love with it and they began to worship it. So that's the Old Testament example. Today, it might be, uh, the idea of like a very specific program that we use to disciple people. So I know our church still has a Sunday school hour and some churches do, many churches don't. And we're constantly evaluating the effect the effectiveness of it. So, what is the problem that Sunday school exists to address? Um, you could you could have different opinions on this, but I would say one of them is biblical literacy, helping people understand what the Bible says, and then another one might just be sort of discipleship. Although, as we've talked about in our most recent episode, discipleship is a lot more than what happens in a classroom. So. But if nobody's coming to Sunday school anymore, instead of just holding down the fort and saying, we're just going to stick with it because it worked 20 years ago, and if these people would just, they get their kids up early enough for church or for school, they should get them up for church and bring them out. We just need to keep pushing it. Like, we need to fall in love with the problem. So if the problem is biblical literacy, maybe the solution isn't a classroom anymore. Maybe the solution in this day and age is how do we use technology? How do we use the fact that people are on their phones so much? Or how do we use a different program, a different approach to create biblical literacy? So that would be an example. So what you're saying is stop being so concerned with the solution to a problem that once worked. And we'll use Sunday school as the example. And we're not saying that this is a bad thing, but just hypothetically, this is the example. So let's say no one's coming to Sunday school anymore. Stop being so consumed with Sunday school and actually be consumed with the real problem, which is why Sunday school was originally created, right? which is biblical literacy or discipleship right. or whatever. 
and fall in love with that, be consumed with that. And if that is the case, would you say, David, that when that happens, the beautiful thing is kind of all of the methods are up in the air and they're all available for examination. Mm -hmm. They're all available for either a revitalization or just killing it altogether or creating something new. Like there it becomes no sacred cows except for the problem. Yeah, because we're not... What roots us is not our programs. What roots us is not our methodology. What roots us is the gospel. Yeah. And what roots us is the mission of God. And so this idea that like we're going to lose our sense of identity and sense of who we are if we don't keep doing things the way we've always done them, it's really a, a, almost a dysfunctional uh, soteriology. It's a way of looking for salvation in methods and um, looking for identity in practice as opposed to position before the Father because of Christ, right? So there's some spiritual implications here too. So I think, you know, the, when an organization, a team, or a church ends up loving the solutions more than the problems, there's a bunch of things that happen. One of them we've already talked about, the idea that they don't move forward. But uh, you can have also what's called the curse of familiarity. Andy Stanley writes about this in his book, Deep and Wide, that the longer you've been near something, the, the worse positioned you are to see it accurately. So uh, when visitors come, like we had dinner, my wife and I had dinner recently with a new couple in our church, and I asked him some thoughts. He's relatively unchurched. Tell me what you think about this. What are you experiencing? What are the questions you have? And when he told me, I just said to him, I'm, I so need your perspective. I so value what you, and I think he at first was like, well, who am I to say? I don't even go to church. I don't know what you're looking for. I don't know yeah. the right answer. But when I said it to that person, I could tell it floored him and helped him realize, man, this guy cares about you know, and I genuinely need that perspective. So if you're a leader, where are you getting outside perspective from on what you're doing, looking at your solutions? Um, and then I'll, I'll say two more. Um, when you love the solution more than the problem, I think it crushes a culture of innovation um, because now you're just defending everything you're doing. And as long as you're defending everything you're doing and having answers for everything uh, that people ask, it actually crushes con- innovation. Uh, and then the other thing is, is it makes people unwilling to have the hard conversation, even if they're the right ones to have. And Joseph Granny says that you can measure the lack of health in an organization by measuring the number of conversations they're unwilling to have. Hmm. And when an organization loves the solutions more than the problems, they just stop having the right conversations. Yeah, I think that's huge. The church I was at before this, and I so appreciate the senior pastor there. Um, you know, he, he's been there for senior pastor for 25 years, hugely successful, one of the largest AG churches in New York. And um, uh, every reason to kind of just sit in success, right, and go, no, um, I'm good. We don't we don't need to change anything. The stuff we're doing is working. Um, but one of the things I really appreciated about him is he really kind of became consumed with the problem of how do we reach young people? You know, how do we reach this next generation with the gospel? And uh, – was unwilling to kind of just sit in the success of, yeah, we've got a lot of people in our church, yeah. but are we really engaging the next generation? And so one of the things I appreciated from him is he, he just started this journey of like asking and trusting young leaders and really kind of put a lot of things on the table as far as what the church did and how it was structured and how we operated and allowed young voices to speak into that and young voices to share with him things that he didn't know because he wasn't in that age demographic, right? And mm-hmm. so um, it was cool to see that, and cool because it's one thing when you're, it's one thing when you're desperate and when you're drowning, or yeah. you feel like you're drowning to go like I'll I'll reach for anything at this point. Sure. 
But when you're on a yacht and you're sailing good, like it's another thing to go, eh, I, I'm not content. Like I'm so consumed with the problem that I'm not content. We're operating a hundred percent here. I think we could actually do this better. Yeah. I respect that. I think that's a great, um, you know, he's modeling that well for other pastors in similar positions as him, both generationally, but even just with his level of sort of success and just being respected. You know, no, when you've said it well, <coughs> when you're successful, you can coast, you yeah. know, and nobody's really pushing on you to change. And there needs to be this inner drive that comes from recognizing that the problem is still out there and, and there's still ways to better address it. So um, let's talk a little bit here about when an organization, a team or a church loves the problem the most then what does that organization look like? And one of the things that I think of right off the bat is everything's on the table except the vision and the mission and the values. So you have these, you have this vision, here's, here's where we're headed. You have these missions, here's what we exist to do. You have these values, here's how we behave, here's how we act, here's what matters to us the most. Those things are um, steady. Those things are sort of untouchable unless you're going through a process where you're relooking at that. But everything else has to be on the table. And when everything is on the table, then what happens is um, you can invite questions and suggestions. You can celebrate. It's, it's one thing to just invite questions and suggestions and push back. It's another thing to actually celebrate it, right? Mm. So if you actually want people to keep bringing their questions and their suggestions and their feedback, you can't just say, hey, everybody, I just want you to share. And then when they share, you either say nothing or you shoot it down. Yeah. You have to say, man, thank you so much for saying that. Even if you actually aren't necessarily super grateful that they said it because you're creating a culture. Could I, I'll, I'll actually take that a step further because I think, I think sometimes you do have to take it a step further than that because eventually solid leaders will go, okay, it's just lip service, right? Like, Hey, thank you. Thank you, brother. That was, Oh, that's good. But, <laughs> but if you do nothing with it right, over right, time, they're right. going like, all right, he's just like, he's just doing this because yeah. this is the leadership thing you should do. Yeah. And I think the next step is, looking around at leaders that you see a gifting in and actually sometimes submitting, and you got to be strategic about this, but submitting what you think may be the best thing to their idea and going, you know what, I'm going to trust that maybe they're onto something here and, and making decisions or changes mm -hmm. based on their recommendation. And so I'm thinking about like when it comes to young leaders that have certain insights, um, I know for me, when I was a young adult pastor, there's certain stuff, and they're like, hey, I think we should do this with this event or, or this activity that we're doing. And I was like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if that would work. But I remember in that moment thinking, you know what? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust them in this moment. And worst case, it doesn't work. We debrief. We realize you know, we're still creating that culture of, you know what? We love the problem. We're, we're willing to do anything, try anything, change anything, whatever. But a lot of times, actually, what I find is they were right. And hmm. also now the culture is, Everything's on the table, and I value what you guys say to the point that I'll submit my own thoughts sometimes. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things that, that I might do at times is if I'm not ready to respond in the moment to the suggestion because I'm still processing it, but I don't want to also shoot it down. Like maybe I don't think it's a good idea, but I'm yeah. not 100% sure because it doesn't challenge our vision, our mission, or our values. I might say something like, hey, um, I'd like to hear more about that. When we meet again, can you come back with some more clarity on that? Come back with some ideas. What would this look like? And and how would it uh, play into our overall vision, mission, and values? And so putting it back in their court to say, I'd love to hear more from you on this, is just creating that, strengthening that culture of feedback. Yeah. I think uh, another thing I talk about a lot is making a mantra within your organization, which is what got us here won't get us there, and it's okay. You know? 
and respecting what God is here. We don't have to disrespect what God is here in order to change right. to get us there. And that's one of the mistakes sometimes I think younger leaders make is they look at things like Sunday school, for example, to go back to that, and they say, oh, it was so stupid. No, what? It, it wasn't stupid. Like right. It actually created the a culture in a church where people loved the Scripture and knew how to study it. Right. Now, maybe it's even a shame that it doesn't work anymore. But instead of just bemoaning the fact it doesn't work anymore and just holding on to that solution too long, we got to find a new one. So respect it for what it was, appreciate it for what it was, but what got us here won't necessarily get us there. Do you think, um, well, why do you think that's so challenging for some leaders who maybe have been around for a bit and seen some success? Well, you're kind of asking them to burn the ladder they just climbed up. Yeah. And um, I talked about it earlier, the nostalgia attached to um, what worked in the past, and also this personal, like, I think in a, an organization that loves the problems most, you can challenge and change existing solutions in a way that's not perceived as a personal attack all the time. Mm. And if you're a leader that's insecure or tied too tightly to things that worked for you in the past and you're going to insist they work for everyone now, every slight challenge, suggestion, question is going to be perceived as a personal attack. You're going to make it personal. You're not going to see the problem properly because you're just not able to distance your emotions, your biases, and your own story from it. And, you know, candidly, the only place you find the sort of roots and strength to not get sucked up in that is identity in Christ, right? Yeah. Yeah, it takes a level of humility but then also a level of security in who your identity is. Mm-hmm. And actually, you and I are, are kind of li- literally living this out right now because I stepped into the role that you were filling and serving for seven years. Mm-hmm. So there are certain things that I have changed and adjustments I've made since stepping in. Mm-hmm. And I don't—I mean, we <laughs> <laughs> Just this is yeah another dirty uh, airing or dirty laundry. Um, I don't know. I don't know how difficult those have been for you, or if if you even care if they're on your radar. Yeah. But there's a there is easily. I, I know there's several times I thought, man, I wonder if it like I wonder if there's a feeling of it's uh, it's an attack on feeling like I'm saying that's a that was a bad decision versus the reality of, no, it may have been a great decision, but it's a different season, and it's also a different leader. Yep, yep. So a great That's decision a for one person yeah. may not be the best decision for another because they just have a different skill set. Yeah, and I think, you know, from my perspective, I just try to root you on and just say, man, I'm just glad you have vision. Like, the last thing I would want is someone to come into this position that I was serving in and just try to maintain First yeah. off, that you and I are, although we're very similar in a lot of ways, we are different leaders. So if you to try to lead like me, wouldn't be wise for you. Right. Um, but also, it you know, youth culture in particular, which is where you're doing a lot of your work, it changes every three to four years. Yeah. So the idea that what I did seven years ago is still going to be the most effective way to do it today is just ludicrous. And so um, I think you know the only the only change you've made that I think we probably should talk about is you asking people to call you King Jared. <laughs> I feel like. You don't you don't think that's a necessary? I, I don't. Well, all right. Anyway, we'll talk about it later. Yeah. But uh, let me let me finish um, with just this thought. One of the clues to how your organization is, as far as it comes to f- loving the problem or the solutions, is you got to pay attention to any conversations you and your team have about goals or desired outcomes that seem to conflict with each other. Mm. And are you having either or conversations, or are you having both and conversations, like Jim Collins talks about? And let me give you some examples of some either-or things that sometimes churches force themselves into and ministries do. 
they might say things like this. Are we going to declare the gospel or demonstrate the gospel? Right. Uh, are we going to be seeker intelligible or are we going to be spirit sensitive? Are we going to run attractional services and programs or are we going to be missional? Are we going to value excellence or are we going to value authenticity? Are we going to take care of the needs in our church family or are we going to serve this community? Do we want people serving in areas of strength only or do we or do we want to have people who are willing to serve anywhere and everywhere regardless? And some of those may seem to conflict. Now, that's a church. You know, in other organizations, like I've given this talk in hospitals, and sometimes it's like um, employee satisfaction versus patient satisfaction or bottom line versus mission focus. And whenever you put those on opposite ends of a spectrum, you've already lost. Yeah. And in his book, Strong and Weak, Andy Crouch talks about moving from spectrums to two-by-two grids. And in a two-by-two grid, you put put one on a horizontal line, you put one on a vertical line, and then you're aiming for the upper right quadrant. But by naming the other three quadrants, so for example, let's say we're talking about we want to, do you want to declare the gospel or demonstrate the gospel? So on the horizontal line, you write declare the gospel from 0 to 10. On the vertical line, you write demonstrate the gospel from 0 to 10. And then you create this two-by-two two grid. The bottom left quadrant is you're low in both. Yeah. The top right quadrant is you're high in both. The top left quadrant, you're high in one, low in the other, and then the bottom right, you're high in the other and low in the first, right? So that's a long way of saying you need to be able not just to draw that grid and write it out, but you need to be able to name the boxes. So what does it look like if you're a church that's high on demonstrating the gospel but not declaring the gospel? Maybe over-focus on um, uh, just exclusive, I should say, focus on social issues. What if you're just declaring the gospel but not demonstrating the gospel? Then maybe it's just an, over, an exclusive focus on personal salvation with no care for the implications of the gospel in the community. If you're in that bottom left quadrant, the worst one, then you're just an ineffective church. But what does it look like to be a church that is fully committed to demonstrating and declaring the gospel? So every church, ministry, and organization needs to have these conversations anytime they see two desired outcomes that seem to conflict with each other. Don't, don't fall for the sucker's choice. Mm. Find a better solution. Yeah. I think that's helpful, too, because it helps you assess, right? Like if you're in that bottom mm-hmm. quadrant, you can step back and the reality is go, what we're doing is not working. So instead of getting depressed or insecure about that, let's change it. Let's mm-hmm. do something different. Let's let's reassess all of our programs, our structure, our policy, some of the stuff you said before, and um, and, and throw it all up, even, even the position, who's on the team. Yeah. Like, who, you know, oh, yeah. sometimes you got to make tough decisions, right? Yeah, if you value position over progress, right. I mean, that's tough. That's people's jobs, of course, so that's not easy, but that's that's the hard work of leadership. Right, you've got to love, you've got to love accomplishing the mission more than you love um, helping people, more than you love relationships that you have, mm, more than you... Protecting a way of life. Right, all those type of things. Um, and, and so I think, and the cool thing is, though, if you can start to create that culture in your organization or your church or, or your youth ministry or whatever the context is, like everybody starts to get it and everybody starts to operate. And it kind of creates this um, selfless commitment mm-hmm. to accomplishing the mission of God. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, hey, hopefully that's a benefit to you guys. And before we close out, we want to uh, hear from David, uh, a little portion of David's Eats that we like to do every episode so, uh, so Dave, I'm going to throw a curveball at you here. Ooh. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite meals to, to eat is breakfast. Mm. Um, in particular, when I'm really feeling crazy, 
I love I love a good good pancakes. Okay. Yeah. Now I want to hear from you. What's your favorite way to eat pancakes? Are you a straight up guy? Are you a chocolate chip? Are you some sort of crazy, you know, crazy combination, multi berry? I mean, yeah. give us a little give us a little picture. Well, um, my wife first off makes amazing pancakes, so a little shout out to my wife. But I like them fluffy. I'd like I, to shout out the fact that she has never made me pancakes. So. You've had cinnamon buns that she's made. That's though, true. And those are. have changed your life they and your waistline. Good. Yeah. Um, you know, so I want the I want the pancake to be just like slightly crispy on the outside, a little brown crispy, but really fluffy. Mm-hmm. Um, I like. Um, Pecans or pecans, depending on where you're from. Oh my goodness! In in pancakes, that sounds terrible. And <laughs> and I mean, how can I say no to chocolate chips? You know, what I mean, it's just like. Uh, so I would say, like, I like pecans. I like pecan or pecans or pecans, chocolate chips, uh, maybe some sliced bananas on top. Oh my gosh! And then some Vermont sap. Okay. Um, or I mean, maple syrup on top. So right. that was going to be my next question: Are you putting Aunt Jemima garbage on this? Or are you doing the real <laughs> stuff? Well, um, I actually have this, uh, um, there's this, I hesitate to say this, but uh, because in the AG, we, the credential holders in the AG, we, uh, we abstain, but there is a bourbon uh, maple syrup that Costco sells. It is good. And, it's, it. and uh, I believe the bourbon's cooked out, although whenever I eat it, I can't remember the rest of the day. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Um, and uh, it's, it's just, it's really thin though. And that's the difference, right? I mean, yeah. there's a lot of differences, but one of the telltales is the really thick maple syrup, generally speaking, is not real maple syrup, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Real maple syrup is thin, so that that's the biggest lesson today. No matter how you like your pancakes, if you're not having real pure yeah. maple syrup, yep, you need to get your life together and repent. Yep. Don't th- fall in love with the Aunt Jemima solution. I mean, the worst day I've ever had as a parent is when my daughter requested fake syrup over real syrup. I just felt like <laughs> such a failure. I just hope that's your worst day as a parent ever. <laughs> I'm gonna pray that over your so life. far, so far. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. Uh, We appreciate you. This is the Multiply Podcast. We'll see you next time.